Hey, it's Daryl. As we get started, I wanted to let you know about a new course that I just released last month, and it is called Helping Others Grow. And if you are interested, uh, I want to give you a special coupon for podcast listeners, and the code is PODCAST21, PODCAST21, and that will get you $10 off the course Helping Others Grow. If you're interested, go to gospelforlife.com, and you can find out more information there. Okay, that's it. Let's get started. Welcome to the Gospel for Life podcast. We help churches make disciples. And now, here's your host, Daryl Dash. Hey, it's great to have you with us again. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Jen Pollock-Michelle to the podcast. Jen is the award-winning author of a number of books, including Teach Us to Want, Keeping Place, and Surprised by Paradox. She's an American living in Toronto. She's also a wife and a mother of five. She's the lead editor for Imprint Magazine, published by the Grace Centre for the Arts, and the host of the Englewood Review of Books podcast. Her latest book, A Habit Called Faith, just came out in February. It's a 40-day Bible reading experience designed to help us with faith formation. Jen, thank you for joining us today. This is going to be so fun, Daryl. It's great to talk to you. I always look forward to when one of your books comes out, so I'm pretty excited. This is great. <laughs> so in the introduction to A Habit Called Faith, you write, don't just try thinking your way into faith, try practicing your way into faith. Go to church, follow the liturgy, act the part. Let habit take you by the hand and lead you to God. Faith may have as much to do with habits as epiphanies. I love that section there. Jen, why are habits so necessary to the life of faith? I think habits are are bodily practices, a lot of them. I mean, not all of them, of course. So just even to think about what you just read, a lot of times we just imagine the life of faith happening in our mind and not actually in our bodies. And that just cuts off a huge part of the way that God has made us. So that when you show up to church, it's something that you're doing in your body. And that when you open your mouth to sing, you're doing that with your body. And there are just ways that it, I think these kind of bodily motions and habits can inscribe faith far more deeply in us than just at the information level. And I think a lot of times, I guess, I don't know if it's true for you, Daryl, but when I think about my struggles of faith, my experience of faith, it's not always the information that fails me. I, there are a lot of things that I know to be true of God true about who I am as his daughter, but sometimes those things just don't feel true. And I think sometimes it's the habits, it's the practices, it's just the motions of faith where we just, we keep at rehearsing that story in a variety of different ways. Some days we feel it and know it deeply in our bones, and sometimes we don't. But the habits sort of carry us through those seasons of wilderness, maybe, if you will. I know you're a fan of James K.A. Smith, and he writes about our view of uh, ourselves really being like brains on a stick. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're getting at is we are far more than that, and habits include our whole being. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of where you're going with this? Absolutely. I mean, the whole book is sort of built on 
or I should say it was inspired by the citation that I had seen by Blaise Pascal, who basically said that same thing. He said, you know, there are some people who they don't really have intellectual questions or obstacles when it comes to Christian faith, but they still don't have a vital experience of faith. And it was his advice, just practice the motions of faith. And you might find that those motions almost open a back door into faith. And I think that's exactly what James K. Smith is saying in a lot of his work is that desire, that habit is a hinge of desire, that we can't often get at our desires. For example, our longing for God or our longing for things other than God. And if we simply tell ourselves, I will believe more deeply, or I'll just simply cram more information in my head so that I can love God, we may find that that doesn't work. And and so if it's true that habits are the hinge of desire, that if we go through these motions of, for example, reading scripture, being with other Christians, singing songs of faith, getting on our knees to pray, fasting, all the kind of praying throughout the day, fixed hour prayer, whatever practice you want to talk about, as we do those things, those might be the hinge by which our desires for God are actually formed. And I think we think of it in a, in the very opposite way. We sort of wait for the desire and then we say, well, the desire will be the catalyst for the habit. As soon as I feel that God is real, well, then I will pray to him. And I think it that actually can feel very hopeless sometimes for people because then they just sort of wait on this emotional experience that never comes. And it's it, I think it's very hopeful to say to people, practice the habits of faith. And you may actually find that the experience of faith comes on the other side of that. The, the whole idea of habits being the gateway to faith is fascinating mm-hmm. to me. I've always thought of habits being, like spiritual disciplines, key to the Christian life. But mm-hmm. you write that habits can actually provide entrance into the faith. So what did you mean by this? Because it really is a fascinating idea that habits could actually lead somebody who doesn't believe into a life of faith. I've seen this actually just over the last couple of years with someone um, from church and a couple of years ago, and now her husband just a couple of weeks ago in my small group. And these are two people who, well, first of all, she ended up at church um, because, because of a life crisis, the sudden death of a friend, guilt that she hadn't reached out to this friend who she knew was dying of cancer. And then she gets word that the friend has died and that she hasn't called her as she had kind of promised that she would. And it's 10, 10 on a Sunday morning and she's just beset by grief and guilt. And she decides I'm going to go to church. And this means nothing to her. She has absolutely, I mean, it means it only means something in a kind of cultural understanding of church. I don't know. Church is where you go when, when people die and maybe when you feel guilty and she searches for a church and she finds a church that's close to her house. And it happens to um, be called Grace Toronto Church. And the friend that's just died, her name was Grace. And she thinks, well, this must be a sign. And so she she shows up to church in her pajamas because it was 20 minutes between finding the church and then showing up for the service. And then over the next year-ish, 
she takes up some habits of faith. She starts coming to church regularly. She starts actually coming to a small group. She, I get involved in a Bible study with her. She's reading the Bible. And she's not doing any of this because she says she believes. She's actually want, she's practicing it as if to examine, could I believe? Would I believe? What would it even mean to do so, to step into faith? And and then it really was just within a period of months and practicing those habits that that things started to make sense for her. So again, I think a lot of times we think people show up with church to church with kind of intellectual questions about the faith. Did Jesus really die on the cross? Was he really the son of God? Can we trust that the Bible is true? Is there a God? Is he good? How does he deal with suffering? How can God be good? And how can the world be so broken? We imagine non-believers asking all of those questions. And some of them are. Many of them are not. Many of them couldn't even imagine what reason they would have to take up faith. And so sometimes, even just to see people take up the habits of faith, it's as if those kinds of things become clear to them through the habits. And I, I think specifically through the habit of reading scripture, which was key for my friend and then also her husband. So her husband started attending church with her months after she had been attending and then this fall started attending the small group that I lead. And he came in fall saying, I've seen this amazing change in my wife. I kind of want a part of that. I want a piece of that. But I really have no idea what, how I could even step into faith. This is a very sort of intellectual, um, rational kind of person. And it's so interesting because essentially when he sort of came to that moment of I mean, just revelation where God just really made things clear to him. It it became clear to him that he was to come to God with his heart and in a in an expression of trust, not because he had all of the answers worked out. And so that's kind of how I imagine this book and just how even really I imagine the way that I operate in relationship with people who are not Christians. Sometimes I am just asking them, hey, do you want to make um do you want to try some of these habits of faith to see if you might find faith on the other side? Do you want to read the Bible with me? Do you want to come to church with me? Do you, I don't know. Usually that's, I guess, where it starts. That makes so much sense. I've never heard that before, and yet it's it just makes so much sense. I love that. So why Deuteronomy? <laughs> you know, it, it's 40 days of readings through Scripture. I love the book of Deuteronomy, and yet it's not one that we turn to to begin to build a habit of Bible reading. So why did you why did you start there? Yeah, I started there, truthfully, not because I thought, because it was my bright idea. I started there because I was in the Gospel of John studying for a speaking engagement that I was doing. And this was quite a while ago, before I even really was thinking about another book. And I was preparing some... Um, some speaking from the farewell discourse and in the commentaries that I was reading, they, it, they were drawing parallels between the farewell discourse in John and the book of Deuteronomy. You know, Jesus is saying goodbye to his disciples. Moses is saying goodbye to the nation of Israel. Jesus is giving his disciples his kind of final words. And Moses is giving these final sermons to the nation of Israel. And I thought, isn't that interesting? I, that sort of piqued my interest. And then as I was reading further, they were saying that there are these five verbs 
that you can find specifically again in John, mostly in the farewell discourse and also in the book of Deuteronomy. And the five words were see, live, love, know, obey. And being a word person, being a writer, I started to imagine what would it look like to actually sort of sell faith, you know, if you will, like if I had to sort of market it, what could I, could you make the case that these five words sort of encapsulate what faith is, you know, seeing, knowing, living, loving, obeying. And that sort of set me on the path of wondering Deuteronomy and John, could this be sort of an interesting project? So, and I also think the other argument, I guess we're starting in Deuteronomy and it really could have been, could have been Exodus. It could have probably been Genesis too, although I think there are specific things in Deuteronomy that commend it, but just this idea of getting people in the Old Testament getting people to see the connections that can be made, actually taking people to some hard parts in the Old Testament. I think we get nervous about people opening their Bible to like a place like, yeah, there are some hard things in Deuteronomy. Jesus calls the Israelites to take over the land and to kill the inhabitants of Canaan. What does that mean? And what does that mean that God would actually command that? And so we get nervous and we want people to avoid those things. And we sort of hope like, well, maybe in four years after they're well-established in the faith, we can, we can take them to the harder parts. But I think I just feel like it's, it's even just the way I parent my children. I always just have always said, I want to just tell you the truth. The truth may be hard. The truth may not feel super comfort comforting or consoling sometimes, but I'd rather you know it now, and I'd rather you hear it from me. I love the way that you handle some of those texts. As I read it, I'm thinking how I would preach those passages, and mm. I just love the angle that you take to make it understandable and, and even plausible. So I've really been enjoying reading as you work through those texts. It's been excellent. Another thing in the book I really love are the stories you tell of people who come to faith. And I love the variety of stories. It's not just mm -hmm. one kind of story, but it's all different uh, people and all different ways and all different perspectives. And yet people coming from really a place of exploration and question to faith. So why did you include those stories in this book too? Stories are so powerful. I think stories have an opportunity to tell us things that we couldn't just tell, you know, with kind of one, two, three, you know, points one, two, and three. I think that people read stories and often can identify with them in, in more deeply personal ways. So that was one of my favorite parts, actually, of the book, was just a collecting a very diverse group of people. I mean, they're diverse in age, they're diverse in race, they're diverse in region, they're diverse in even denominational affiliation and the way that they come to faith. And what I really wanted to do was just to be able to say to that person who comes to this book and imagine that there's one way to come into faith. Um, and maybe they, they couldn't do it the right quote unquote way. I want them to see that there is no right way. I think that's the thread that connects them all as you see how God is so insistently pursuing of people, how he makes the initiative to reveal himself to people, people who sometimes are looking for him and people who are sometimes not. Some of my favorite stories are 
I mean, I have a couple healing stories in there. I for sure have one healing story in there. I've got some more charismatic stories, which isn't my background and certainly has not ever been my experience. But I thought, well, this, I mean, I guess we could take issue with the book of Acts too. <laughs> but it, it was so encouraging for me to just be reminded that God's word is powerful. You see people reading the scriptures and that's something that compels them to faith. Just, yeah, it was just so wonderful. And I actually have to say that most of the interviews at some point, I was crying. The person I was interviewing was crying. And just to, even to, it was such a privilege actually to be able to hear people just rehearse their story and be reminded themselves, oh, God's been so good to me. They're beautiful. And it, it seems so appropriate because reading Deuteronomy is a story and then John mm. is a story and then seeing these modern day stories, it, it just somehow connects it. And I love the stories. So, Jen, I want to ask you back up a little bit towards the start of your book. And you talk about the the way that Bible reading has shaped your life. You call it a keystone habit, one practice that affects incremental, if also monumental change. So would you unpack that a little bit? Why is Bible reading so important in your life? I can imagine, I could sort of make an analogy, I guess, when we moved to Toronto and my kids were enrolled in a French-speaking school. And what did they do when they were learning French? Like, they were just immersed in it every day. They're just, the teacher is speaking French to them, and they're just sort of picking up the clues. And, and it's that immersion experience in the language that allows them to be able to produce the language themselves. And I think that is what happens to us when we read the Bible. It is God's word to us, and it can become God's word in us, too. So that where faith is like a patterning after the ways and thoughts of God, how he sees the world, how he sees us, how the story of redemption that he's scripting throughout history, through Jesus— and we wouldn't know any of that language. We wouldn't know any of that story apart from scripture. And so I think immersing ourselves in it, it it's just, it feeds our faith. It feeds our, it feeds our way of seeing the world as God sees it. And I, I think it's always interesting to me when, you know, I'll talk to Christians and it's not to say that it's an easy habit because we, we live in such a distracted world. We want to read everything but the Bible. I mean, we will scroll whatever site that we have to, sometimes just to avoid reading the Bible. I don't, and I think, at least initially, I guess, as we start the habit, it can feel really hard. And so I'm surprised, but I am surprised as I talk to Christians who go through seasons and they feel like their faith is really weak. And when you sort of probe a little bit into that, they, they'll say things like, yeah, you know, I, I don't have any regular practices or habits. I'm not reading the scripture and sort of like, well, if you weren't eating your food every day and you were trying to run a marathon every day, that would be pretty hard. And especially when we live in a world that just doesn't, Faith is not, it's not a reflex. I mean, what is reflexive to us as human beings is a desire for autonomy and self-rule and life on our own terms. And so that's why I feel like getting into the Bible is, is a really important habit. And I guess I want to also say that 
we what also is reflexive to human beings is feeling that God could never love us, that we are so bad and so messed up and so screwed up that, you know, we're sort of beyond redemption. And that's not the story that you find in scripture. I mean, what's revealed is a God who remembers that we are dust, who has compassion on his children, whose heart groans within him. And he recoils from doing what justice would really require if he were to visit punishment on us for our own sins. So all of these things are not self-evident and they're revealed to us through scripture. And I, I'm not sure that, I think we just need that. We need the daily meal of God's scripture of, of scripture. And Jesus knew that too. Man doesn't live by bread alone. And he's quoting, of course, from the book of Deuteronomy, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that's certainly been my experience in faith, is that practicing the habit of regular Bible reading has has actually deepened my desire for Bible Bible reading and my acute sense of need. So that now, this is a long-established habit, and it's not to say that I don't have days and seasons where it waxes and wanes, but most generally what's true is that I do hunger for the Word of God, and I feel faint without it. It would be easy to see Bible reading as being the equivalent of eating our spinach. We know we need <laughs> to do it, but it's not necessarily what we crave. And yet you can get to the point, Shardine uh, and I were at, at a restaurant or actually at a hotel last week, and uh, we ordered breakfast in. And one of the things that Solchar on this place is that they have uh, salad as part of their breakfast. And it's something <laughs> actually that she's grown to crave now. And mm. it just feels like breakfast is incomplete without that. So how do you get to that point where we know we need it, but we don't want to do it just completely out of drudgery. We want delight in the word of God. So what are some ways that we can approach the word of God with delight, not just maybe it's a thing that I have to do again? Mm-hmm. I think it's okay to start with your own curiosities and desires. There's so much in the Bible, and I think a lot of times drudgery kind of approach is like, well, I better start in Genesis, better make really good run through the scriptures and start at the very beginning. And that might be what you need to do. I mean, I am certainly a fan of Bible reading plans, and that's personally what I do. But you know what? My, start in the Psalms. Start in a book of the Bible that speaks to where you are. Start in Job if you're going through a season of trial or suffering. Start in the Gospels if you just want to remember who Jesus is and be closer to what he did on the cross. So, for example, during Lent, it's a great time to be revisiting the Gospels. So I think it's this balance of well, there's a, there is a have-to element. I mean, try to do, do something. Find some plan, some structure, something to kind of anchor you in your desire to read Scripture. But it's okay for it to be guided by your own curiosities and sort of longings and questions. I always find for myself that a structure is good, but a structure is always a means to an end. In Bible reading, I think it is a means to an end. It's not that we just, you know, have checked our box, I read my Bible for the day, or God's really happy with me, or now I know some theological term that I didn't know before. 
we read the Bible to meet God, to hear from God, to commune with God, to deepen our friendship with God, to understand more deeply that he will never leave us, never forsake us, that he inclines his ear to hear our prayer. And so these, this is who we learn God to be as we read the scriptures. So do something that fosters that. And when whatever you're doing isn't fostering that, not just because it's not fostering that in a day, don't give up on a system just because it didn't work one day or one week. But if you've pursued something for a while and you, you know, a couple months and you realize, ah, maybe I'm ready for a change, then change by all means change. And I think we need accountability too. I mean, I want to say this too, is that Bible reading is, is not just an individual discipline, something that we do in community together as the word is preached. Thank you, Daryl, for being a preacher of the word um, as we read it together in small groups and puzzle over it. So having accountability where other people are reading alongside you and where also they get to share what they're learning. There's nothing more encouraging. I've been reading the Bible now, as I've mentioned, for a couple of years with this newer believer. My faith has just ignited because I see her reading the Bible, her just benefiting so much from this habit, growing like a weed. And that just encourages my own habits and practices. What would you say to somebody who thinks that they're not very good at habits? I would say that we're all not good at habits in some way, shape, or form. I, well, first of all, I would say, okay, you know, you, yes, temperamentally, some of us are more routinized. And so, sure, some by, by personality, some people may have an easier time maybe with just making goals, sticking to them. I, I happen to be temperamentally one of those kinds of people. You don't have to be like that to make a habit. And, and number two, I guess I would say is that we all do have habits. The point isn't whether you'll have habits or whether you won't have habits. It's just which habits will you cultivate? So we could all sort of inventory our lives and we could see the regular patterns and routines that we have to our days, you know, whatever it is. You pick up your phone first thing in the morning. What's the first website that you look at? You pad down to the kitchen and you make your coffee and or you drink your protein shake and Maybe you have an exercise habit, or maybe your habit is binge watching Netflix every day after you finish work. But the point is, you do have habits. And so examining that and just saying, okay, let me be a little bit honest with myself. I do have habits. Now what am I going to do? How am I going to make some better habits? Well, you got to start small. You cannot attempt something really, really hard. And Daryl, I feel like I feel like actually you would be much better answering this question <laughs> because I know you've done you've done so much with habits, but starting small is a really important part of it. If you attempt something monumental and impossible, you're going to last three days. But attempting something that you feel like is pretty reasonable, hopefully there are a lot of great habit-building books out there that just sort of give you some very easy tips on how do you start a new habit. But it does begin with that intentionality. I'd like to have some new habits. I recognize I have some bad habits. And this is going to take work. It doesn't just happen because you tried it three days. Habit building 
is something that really requires a lot of patience, which is another part of the accountability piece. Having some people sort of in your cheering section to say, you can do it. And when you fell and tripped, you can get back up. <laughs> I love the way that you remind us of community because sometimes we approach habits so individualistically and mm. yeah, that's so helpful. Uh, really good advice there. So Jen, I want to ask you for free consulting advice. How can we do a better <laughs> job in our churches in helping people develop faith-forming habits? I, when I was 16 and I came to faith in Christ, I was so grateful that somebody said to me, make some good habits and here, here are some suggestions. And they actually quantified it. And it, to, to even sort of repeat it, it sounds so ridiculously legalistic. And I think that's our fear that will that people will interpret any sort of practical advice on habit building as some like legalistic form. And as human beings, I feel like we can always take legal we can always take advice and turn into legalism. We could turn anything into legalism. It's it it makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we're in control. It it keeps us resistant to grace. So it's the paradox of saying to somebody, okay, everything in your spiritual life, you it depends on God. Faith is a response to God, to what God has done through Christ, to the grace that's available in Christ. You are now united with Christ. You're buried with him in death. You're raised to walk in newness of life in, in patterned after his resurrection. This is where all of the energy for your spiritual life will come. So we need to say that to people. And then we also need to say to people, like Paul said in, the, in Philippians, God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we need to give people categories for what I would call consent to grace or participation to grace, or I mean, really, we could talk about habits as means of grace. What ways do they respond to God in his grace and his activity of grace in their lives? So just saying, I mean, honestly, just telling people, have a habit of regular daily Bible reading. Here are some ways to do that. Have a habit of regular prayer. Here are some ways to do that. Have habits of regular fellowship with other Christians where you pray together and confess your sins together and, and you encourage each other. You spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Here are some ways to do that. Have some habits of, yeah, confession. I already mentioned that. Private, public confession. Here are some ways to do that. We, we really actually should give people some practical tips in the context of this is all by grace. This is all by grace. God's work in your life is by grace. You respond to him because of his active grace in your heart. But leaving people without any sort of know-how in terms of growing in their faith, I think is actually really discouraging for people. And I think it leaves them to feel as if they're left to flounder. And maybe I could just say briefly, I'm even thinking about this man in my small group who recently became a Christian. I loved actually his analogy because he said, I know that the emotions of faith will probably fade. I'll probably in a month or two or in a year or however long it'll be, I won't feel as I do right now at this moment where God feels so real and everything feels so fresh and I'm just so happy and full of joy. 
So I know I'm probably going to have to approach my life of faith like I approach my golf game. I'm going to have to just keep swinging. If your golf swing is being tweaked by your, what if you're taking lessons, you're going to have to, I think he said you have to practice it 2,000 times before it's actually inscribed into your muscle memory. He said, so I think it's going to sort of be like that. I'm like, yes, exactly. And how encouraging for people to feel like they don't just have to depend on the emotions of faith. Because I think for some people, when those ebb, they worry that faith has ebbed with them. And when we commend to people, there's just really practical ways of connecting with God, connecting with God's people. It, it really does feel like an anchor. And I think it's super hopeful. I've always appreciated your writing, your articles, your books. You have a way of communicating truth with beauty, and I really appreciate that. This book is going to be helpful for people to develop a, a habit of Bible reading and to explore faith, and I know I'm enjoying it as I read through it. Jen, I wanted to ask you a couple of more personal questions if I could. What are you sure. learning right now? Oh, what am I learning right now? Gosh, I am learning that. It's like, where do I go with this? I mean, I can think about a question that I've just recently written in my journal. So one of the things I've been learning, I guess over the last year is about a new, new practice, couple new practices for me, the practice of regular examine, which is just having like in the morning, in the evening, just some questions that I regularly ask myself, which keep me paying attention to my own inner life and my own life of faith with God, my walk with God. So I've been doing that and I've just come, I keep coming to new questions I find that I need to be asking myself. One of the new questions I would say that's probably new in the last month is the question, how can I downsize this idea? Because it sounds crazy, but I've learned, I'm learning, I just feel like I'm constantly learning about myself that I answer every problem with more, you know, if something's not going well, well, then I should just do more. I should just work harder. I should just write more. I should, I don't know. I, everything is more, more, more. And I've recognized that that's not always the wisest answer. And sometimes more gets me into a lot of trouble where I'm not able to embrace my limits, where I'm not able to embrace my humanity. And so this is just a theme of my spiritual life for years now. It's just that I am invited into being fully human in my life with God. He doesn't, he's not asking me to be superhuman. I'm just human. And that means that I have limited wisdom and I seek, and that's why I get to seek wisdom from him. And I have limited capacity. And that means laying down things that I can't fix or repair people, relationships, broken situations, conflicts, there are outcomes that I have to lay down that just more is just not an answer because really sometimes more is inspired by fear, fear of the things that, that won't happen if I don't make them happen. So I don't know that even just that little practice of examine has been really helpful in identifying a question that helps me to see a pattern in my life that's not been super fruitful. 
I use that word fruitful because that's another thing I've been learning. I've been, I think, especially in the pandemic year, realizing that the category of productivity is is absolutely unhelpful and probably unbiblical, depending on how how we mean to use it. But it just in various research that I've been doing, it it's far more related to machines than it is to humans. And that the the life of faith in scripture is described as a fruitful life. And I think fruitful is far more fertile and no pun in, pun intended, I guess, of an image to think, you know, I'm, I've got a couple books on my shelf here where I'm learning about trees in scripture. I don't know, this could go with so many different ways. I'm one of those people that today I'm learning this and tomorrow I'm off to a new <laughs> book. And <laughs> But yeah, that just a sense, I guess in the pandemic, especially, wanting to grow a deeply rooted life that looks like the tree of Psalm 1, the fruit that will always it's it's producing fruit in in it's always in season and those are some of the things that i think have been kind of threads i guess especially of this last year but do feel like it's been a, a year of disruption and a year of learning too I picked up some of those themes in your newsletter and it's got me thinking, oh, <laughs> yeah, it's been really good. The whole productivity discussion is mm. is very good. I, I remember you writing about that recently and some of the books that you were reading around that. So that's so helpful. You've given me a lot to think about. I think I'm going to be rewinding and, and thinking about some of those things. Second question, this is a, and final question, this is a really difficult time for a lot of us. Not only are we in the middle of a pandemic, at least I hope we're in the middle. <laughs> Maybe, oh, who knows, yeah. right? And right now, as we record this, it's still winter here. What's encouraging you right now? Well, I'm going to go back to one of my new practices for the pandemic. I've been reading The Divine Hours, which is essentially like a breviary. It's a, it's a prayer manual. And you four times a day. And I never do it four times a day. I do not want to pretend that I am, you know, some perfectly saintly person that I always remember to pray when I should, but you're supposed to come to prayer four times a day. And what's deeply encouraging about this practice and just picking up this book is every time you open it, the first line, the opening line is always a Psalm of praise, like an invitation into praise. Hallelujah, sing your praise to the Lord, magnify the Lord, the Lord is great, he is good. And the funny thing is, is that every time I open that book and I come to prayer, I realize, no, what I really want to talk to God about is what I'm anxious about, what I need his help with, the wisdom that I'm seeking for this situation, the the help I need and intervention that I need for that situation. And then I sit down and I open my prayer book and I remember Oh, that's right. God is worthy of praise. He's, he's actually holding it all together. Scripture tells us that he is sustaining the universe with his word. And so when we're in the midst of a time where it feels like things are really falling apart, when we cannot see our way through to the other side of something, how encouraging actually to be caught up in the chorus of praise that has actually, it's ongoing. We know that the chorus of praise is ongoing in heaven. We know it's, I mean, if God is outside of time, this chorus of praise 
it's been ongoing since the beginning of time. We are in chorus together with Christians throughout time, past, present, and future. I mean, it can blow your mind a little bit, but that's encouraging to me that there, it also draws me up from my little pinhead sized life and the anxieties that, that are very real and also smaller than I can see. And sometimes when I just step into that chorus of praise, I'm reminded of, of really how big God is, how good he is, how faithful he is, and how I'm enfolded in his love. That's great. You've given me so much there to think about. Well, Jen, I really appreciate your time today. Being an author is a funny thing because you write uh, you, and write for months and then your book is out there. And I just want you to know, as uh, you already do, that I really appreciate your ministry. And we have people in our church that are so excited every time one of your books comes out. Authors don't always realize the impact that you're Mm. having, but very grateful for you and very grateful for your ministry. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Daryl. And I can't wait to open your book soon, which will be coming out this fall. So I feel absolutely the same way. Thank you. Thank you for the plug. (laughs) Take care. <laughs> You're welcome. Bye, Jen. Thank you. Bye.